The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Ooh, shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter post-apocalypse party planners. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 19, Ashes and Shadows and Monsters Oh My. And we'll be talking with writer Ilsa J. Bick about her writing career from Star Trek to her young adult books, including the Ashes trilogy. But first, a quick reminder to check in with us on Twitter and Facebook and drop by generationsgeek.com for handy links to all of our shows on the Chronic Rift Network. And you can email us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. Make sure to stay tuned after the interview for a special promo from Sean and Bridget Vanderloo over at the geeky podcast, The Rusted Robot. Now, on with the show. Ilsa J. Beck, welcome to Generations Geek. Well, thanks for having me. I kind of want to start right at the beginning, and I'm guessing the beginning, as it is for many people, is William Shatner as James T. Kirk. <laughs> Actually, you have that almost right. It's really William Shatner's chest. <laughs> uh, believe me, when I was growing up, this was beefcake. And, you know, this was this is a guy who could not keep his shirt on for the entire first season. And for a 14, 15-year-old girl, it was like, oh, wow. You know, and especially because his chest, you know, who knew that he waxed? You know, I, who knew that these things happened with, you know, uh, movie stars? I didn't know that. And my dad was a really hairy guy. He looked like, you know, a gorilla. But, you know, here's when Shat's smooth and wonderful. You see the you know, pecs. And <laughs> like, ah, this is so cool. So that was why in the second season when he appears in that one topless scene, boy, it sounds so risque, with uh, Spock. And, you know, um, they didn't yeah. wax uh, Nimoy. So yeah. he's got all his hair. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, that's just weird. <laughs> Nimoy, well, because Nimoy is supposed to be this unemotional guy, and yet he, you've got this primate, <laughs> you know, next to William Shatner. And I, I wonder if they paid him as much or whatever. But, you know, that had to be painful. You realize, of course, that Shatner, we're getting far afield. He doesn't have a lot of hair up here, like none. But he, he's a really hairy guy. You see him in other – isn't this bizarre? You see him in other um, venues after – uh, Star Trek, especially if he's in, you know, kind of something kind of low cut, you see the hair kind of coming up. Yep. I was thinking, oh, that destroyed my my um, my image <laughs> of it. But yeah, of course it was William Shatner, but but really it was it was James T. Because I had a chance to to really meet William Shatner at one point when I was given a talk about Star Trek. This is years later when he had a, a, a different lace so that his hair was different from mm-hmm. Star. Trek. He didn't even look like himself. He was in his um, post. I think it was like Star Trek. I want to say it was '91. So when was Betsy? When was the last? Oh gosh, it was well before the last film. Anyway, um, he had the curly hair. Now he yeah. had some sprouted curly hair instead of straight hair and very sparse. Um, and we were really close. And I was sitting there thinking, boy, I could meet this guy, and he could fall all over himself and say, "Ilsa Bick, where have you been all my life?" <laughs> but then I, you know, I just sort of took a step back and said, "No, no, no." You know, nothing will be as good as my memories of that chest <laughs> way back in the 60s. So, yes, that was a long-winded answer. Yeah, 
<laughs> That's the beginning. Writing and, myself into interesting adventures on the Enterprise. So you became a Star Trek fan and a science fiction fan back then. Did you start pursuing writing in that kind of uh, genre no. then? Or? No, no. The only thing I wrote when I was... Uh, I never wrote. Um, I never thought of myself as a writer. In fact, I gave a talk to a bunch of shrinks. This is where you have to be careful when you're hanging out with a bunch of shrinks, being a shrink, you know, mm -hmm. you can tend to hang with them. And I, and I gave this talk to a bunch of shrinks and this one guy, old guy raised his hand, this analyst. And he said, um, you know, when did you, you must've started writing at an early age. And I said, no, actually I, I never did. I wrote really bad epic poetry when I was about 17, 18, 19, something like that. You know, really bad thing. Oh, I'm dying of whatever. And you know, it was just really bad. And I mainly did it as I was working part-time as a secretary because I was bored with all the reports I had to do. So I write bad epic poetry. And I read, I wrote one really bad story that was a ripoff of Madeline Engel's Wrinkle in Time. <laughs> where it was the, you know, I had transposed the giant brain of it from Wrinkle in Time to being the principal of the high school where I was. <laughs> and, you know, and of course, everyone else in the high school was zombified except for me, so I had to, you know, rescue everybody. Now, why I bothered because I actually detested high school, who knows? But, <laughs> you know, maybe someone would like me, who knows? But anyway, um, this analyst said, you must have always written. I said, no, but I did do a lot of telling myself of stories when I was doing chores because my dad is a maniac when it comes to, we didn't have a lot of land when we were growing up. And then whenever he would buy a place that had land, he would plant things. And then he would hand me these, you know, the equivalents of little nail clippers and say, go clip the hedges. You know, go, go, clip underneath the, the trees. So I'd be out there for hours in the sweltering sun, giving the, the you know the lawn a pedicure, and, uh, and and dreaming of adventures on the Enterprise. So you know, the analyst said, "Well, then you were telling yourself stories back then." It's like, "Oh, really?" Um, but I didn't really start writing until my husband dared me. It was, I think, 1995, 96, something like that. So you hadn't been writing that long then before you got into Strange New Worlds. No, I'd only been writing for two two years, but um, I, I wrote a lot in those two years. I wrote like six novels and about 40 stories. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when I got into Strange New Worlds, I remember Dean Smith, who was the editor for that. Um, when I finally met at a workshop, oh, he invited me out to a workshop um, at some uh, science fiction convention. I can't remember. But he invited me out to, to, to meet him and Chris. And he said, you know, it's a business class we're giving. You should, you know, come on out. And it was really interesting. And when we met, he said, how long have you been writing? And I said, well, you know, I told him. He goes like, oh, well, that, he says, was that your first story? I said, no. And he said, oh, well, that's why it was so good. Because you need to write about a million words before you write one decent story. I was like, oh, okay. Gee, I thought all the stuff I'd written before was good. But now when I go back and look at it, I go, oh, ooh, I hope no one ever sees this. This is the great posthumous works of Ilsa J. Bick. Somebody will, you know, you know, when I'm dead. Yeah. So we'll do a big study of all my work, and they'll find all these old things in Word. Gosh, they would be in Word perfect at this point. <laughs> Um, probably not translatable on any program and, and no loss, believe you me. Although I did come close with one with a Trek book mm -hmm. uh, that I sent to John Ordover when he was the editor at Trek at that point. Mm -hmm. And another book that I sent to a guy named Wang at Time Warner. Um, and he said, boy, you really know the military. I said, yeah, well, because I was in it. But, you know, so I came close, but, but no cigar. So it took a long time. You got into Strange New Worlds which was the same way that I broke into the Star Trek thing. But then at some point, you transitioned from that and some of your other tie-in fiction to the young adult market. How did that come about? Not easily. 
Um, I was writing Trek and Battletech and MechWarrior and, and Shadowrun and stuff like that for several years. And then um, about 2005, I was in SCE, which I just loved, this Star Trek mm-hmm. Engineers, which I just loved because Keith was a wonderful editor and he gave me a lot of leeway. And we had this whole big arc arranged for, that we were going to write that was essentially going to be a Trek CSI. Mm-hmm. Um, and I already had the, the characters. I was actually pulling McCoy was going to be there. I had pulled a character from the novel I'd done for Trek already, The Lost Era. And so I was all ready to go. And then, you know, Keith got the word that uh, the series the, the series had been killed. And I was like, what? So now we left, we left my poor, you know, lens pregnant and on earth and not knowing what happens to all these people. And that's, that just totally sucked. Um, and it was at also at around this time that I was actually pitching other novels to uh, the editor at the time. And um, he kind of invited me into his office and sat me down. And he said, look, um, you know, don't take this the wrong way. <laughs> but I'm going to essentially cut you loose from track. And, and, I, and I was like, of course I took it the wrong way. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> um, he says, well, he says, because I think that what you need to do is your, your writing is getting much, he didn't say more mature, but he pretty much kind of came out. So he says, your writing is getting to the point where I think what you're really straining against are the boundaries of this universe, that, you know, the universe won't let you do what you really want to do. He says, I think you really need to get out there and start writing your own stuff, which was probably a great piece of advice, but felt like he had taken me out and shot me. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, can I still pitch to you? He says, well, sure, you can still pitch to me. He says, but, but the chances are I probably won't because this is really, you really need to get out there. Um, and I was like, ah, and then at one point he and I were talking about me doing something for him that he could submit, um, a sort of a sci-fi CSI type of thing. And I, you know, I remember agonizing about this with Dean Smith and Chris Rush and, you know, having long talks and, and Dean said, don't you realize he's just done you a huge favor? He's told you get out, (laughs) go write your own stuff. It's going to be hard and scary, but go do it. So I did that, and it was like in 2005, and at that point, I was actually writing mystery. So it wasn't until 2009, and I was writing for uh, a lot of other short short markets, sci-fiction, for example. Ellen Datlow and I got to be pretty close. She was great. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the young adult stuff didn't happen until I went to another workshop at Dean Smith's, and this was writing queries and synopses. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to write a synopsis of an idea that I had for a young adult book about Nazis in in Wisconsin, um, which is a real historical thing. And I wrote that, and I wrote the blurb letter and everything, and I remember everybody in the room just kind of stopped. And everyone kind of looked at me, and Dean looked at me, and he said, you know, I'd really like to read that book. (laughs) I thought, really? So what happened was, this is like 2009. And so what I did was I, I went home and I pretended that I had written the book and I sent out the synopses and the query letters to a bunch of editors. And within two weeks, I got a return back, from, a reply back from an editor, the one who did the Bloody Jack series. And she said, I love that kind of book. I'd really like to read that. And I thought I better write it. So I sent back something saying, oh, I'm so busy doing this, that, and the other. And then I wrote my fingers off for like, you know, eight weeks and then sent it in, didn't hear anything. And didn't hear anything. But by then, I actually really discovered that I liked young adult fiction. So I sat down and wrote another book. And then, um, you know, that book, it turns out that woman came back and, and she quit. And so I, I turned that book, which turned out to be Draw the Dark. I sent that into the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award competition, which they didn't have any young adult um, um, 
sections at that point. I sent it in under mystery. And at the same time, I was also marketing this other young adult book, which became a Sin Eater's Confession. And at the time that I sent that out, Sin Eater's Confection, I had just heard back from Amazon saying, oh, by the way, you're one of the top 100 finalists for this competition. So I put that into the, the first line of my, my query letters to editors, and I broke all the rules. I didn't use an agent. I sent right to the <laughs> editors. I sent emails to all the editors. And I sent this like on a Sunday night. And by Monday morning, I had you know, to five people. And by Monday morning, I had five requests to see the manuscript. And by Wednesday, I had an editor on the line say, we need to talk. And by Friday, I'd sold the book. And so I was <laughs> wow. like, you know, so it was very fast. And so that was yeah. in 2009. Are you going to come back to that? <laughs> I keep wanting to because I've left it wide open. Yeah. Um, literally with the opening <laughs> of the door. And I, I really, really wanted to. At one point, I was actually going to weave in part of Draw the Dark to white space. And uh, then it's, excuse me, it's sequel Dickens Mirror. And then I decided not to um, because I thought that Draw the Dark was had too much of its own stuff mm -hmm. that it should address. So the answer is yes, I actually have a, a sequel in mind that okay. would focus more on Sarah, um, who's the girl kind of left standing at the end. Yeah. Um, but I just, you know, I've gotten so involved. I got so wrapped up in then doing, you know, everything else that's come up since then. That, that I haven't been able to do it yet. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of out there, like a 747 on the, on the runway. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you know, kind of waiting to take off. But then um, it's sort of like failure to launch. It's a really bad chick flip, too. The problem with that is I'm a different writer now than I was when I wrote Draw the Dark. And so I have to make sure that if I go back to Draw the Dark, I go back because I really believe there's more of Sarah and Christ Christian's story to tell. Or am I just doing it because, well, I've had this idea for a long time and I should just do it, you know? So, yeah, I would like to. On the other hand, a lot of people have said that it was kind of the perfect ending because it is actually a great metaphor for what happens in adolescence, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. the idea of you eventually must leave your home. You have to work yeah. up the courage to walk out the door. Yeah. And that's what this kid has done, finally. Um, so, you know, it works on both levels, and that's yeah. why the editor and I decided to leave it the way it was. He really liked the ending to begin with, the ambiguity of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then we did talk about a sequel. He says, like, I would not be averse to a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, um, as soon as I can get to that. <laughs> How did you get the idea to, to go to that market in the first place? Where did it come from to just try a young adult? As much as I hate to say this, you know what the answer is to this. Come on. Most science fiction is adolescent literature. <laughs> you know, it really is. I mean, you may have adults, but they're doing very adolescent things. A lot of Trek is really about, you know, the same type of adolescent concerns that most people have. And so, and I also grew up in science fiction where you've got Dune and things like that. And those are all adolescent protags. So at a certain level, I guess, you know, it was kind of always in there. And mm -hmm. it, it, even Dean Smith said, look, come on, Star Trek is very adolescent. And I was like, well, okay. And he's Mr. Trek, you know? So I said, okay, I guess you're right. Um, but it really wasn't a conscious decision. It was just that I enjoyed writing that first book, Draw the Dark. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed The Sin Eater's Confession. And, you know, as a child shrink, I guess, you know, I was sitting here thinking, duh, you're a child shrink too. Why don't you use, you know, all your experience that you've had with, you know, kids and start writing for kids um, because you've spent most of your life with kids. So. <laughs> Instead of adults, I spend my life with kids and cats. I mean, what, what kind of <laughs> the one adult in my life is my husband. Oh, 
Um, but other than that, you know, I just, I just really like it. I also like the freedom of the genre. Because if you look at YA, you can do a mishmash of all sorts of stuff. I mean, you can get very Stephen Kingy and go sci-fi, horror, and and sort of, I don't know, what what do they call magical realism, all in one yeah. book, and and no one gets upset. Yeah. And I really like that. It's it doesn't feel like there are a lot of the same strictures uh, as there are in other genres. And I just yeah, I just like it. They market the. It's like the age is the genre. They say it's young adult. Right, and they're not as worried about all the other tags. Where right, in exactly adult right. fiction, as as right? As long as you're writing yeah. about kids and kids' concerns, even if you put them in a very difficult setting, as I usually do to all my kids, um, you know, whether it's a you know an apocalyptic type of thing or or you know a horror setting or whatever I do, um, you know, as long as you're trying to write authentically from their point of view, that's all that seems to matter. Yeah. That kind of leads into my next question: What you just yes. said there. In all of your young, your young adult work, Drawing the Dark, The Senior's Confession, The Ashes Trilogy, the, the non-genre piece, uh, Drowning Instinct, mm-hmm. they're all pretty dark. <laughs> Do you think it's your time as a child psychologist which has put you in a position to address darker issues in your young adult fiction? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I actually am a child psychiatrist, but, you know, I don't get too hung up about that. This is, you know, but I'm a psychiatrist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that most kids, I know it sounds so cliche, there are some happy kids out there, but let's face it, high school sucks. <laughs> um, you know, it is a time, it is, it is where, you, it, where every moment for a kid feels like the end of the world and things are never going to get better. Um, and I don't think people, and I, and I have seen some girls and guys who are just masters of facade, but they are the most evil people. <laughs> Remember, I've worked in a women's prison, so I've met some really <laughs> evil people. So, you know, it's not called teenage angst for nothing. Yeah. They, they really do tend to focus. I'm sorry for the, the one teenager in the room. <laughs> but I mean, there's a lot of darkness that goes on, um, that they have to put on a really good face sometimes for their parents. Um, and for the rest of the world, I think if people really understood how much viciousness and sadness that there can ex- can exist in families, they they they'd all never want to have kids. <laughs> um, but I've seen a lot of families, and this is very serious. I've seen a lot of families who come in in great distress, um, telling me how much they love each other. But I've never seen so many people bound together by hate in my life. Um, mm-hmm. They they do terrible things to one another. Plus. You know, being also psychoanalytically trained, I kind of, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to people about their fantasies and their dreams. And there's a lot of darkness in that, too, that kind of spills over into real life. And as a shrink, you tend to see kids when they're at their very, very worst because they have gone and their families, too, because they've gone to other venues. They've usually gone to their pediatrician, a social worker, a psychologist and all that sort of stuff. And by the time they land in your office, you are the very last option. They are none of them are happy to see you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because you you when you walk into a doctor's office, you know, you are saying by definition, something is broken and I can't fix it. Yeah. And still a tremendous stigmata. Um, associated with psychiatry and mental illness in general. So, you know, yeah, I've seen a lot. Um, And do I tend toward darkness that way because of that? Sure. It's probably why I don't like romance very much because I, first of all, teenage insta-love just kind of bores the hell out of me. Um, And because it's just, it's ridiculous. 
Um, and um, although you can have intense infatuations and crushes, certainly people do that all the time. And, and at some level, that's what drowning instinct is about, is being swept away by that. But I think that I object to young adult fiction that posits finding a love interest as the end-all and be-all of a girl's existence. Mm -hmm. um, or a boy's, but mainly girls. And I and I there's a, a librarian who runs a great website called Stacked. She did a wonderful breakdown of covers for young adult fiction that's essentially, you know, young adult romance. Yeah. They the covers with the pieces of bodies, pieces of girls' bodies, pieces of guys' bodies, girls with wispy hair and the dresses and everything, um, were indistinguishable from adult romance. Um, and I think that that it kind of you know, when you consider that romance is a huge market, it's like, what, 60% of the reading public reads romance? I'm, I'm going to make tons and tons of enemies here. But I, I think that love is important, but feeding into fairy tale fantasies is not. Yep. And again, the idea that a girl cannot be complete until she finds that boyfriend for her really bothers me. And it's the same thing for guy fiction. I don't see a lot in, I don't see it quite as much in guy fiction. But it really bothers me for girl fiction. I just, I just object to it. So, yep. okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just made tons of enemies. You should, you should elide that entire just like. Because <laughs> <laughs> all the, of course, all the people who are way more successful than I am have intense, you know, love triangles and love interests. See, this is what I need to do. I have to have a love triangle. But you don't know. I get tons and tons. I just got a fan letter today, in fact. But I get a lot of email from people who say. Thank you for not doing a love triangle. Thank you for not making this a romance. Thank you for not, you know, making the kiss be the only thing that matters. Yep. And it's like, you're welcome. And then I, you know, so there are a lot of like-minded fans out there. Yep. We just need to speak up. Let's talk more specifically about your epic Ashes trilogy. <laughs> okay. Have I you guys had a chance to look at White Space at all, by the way? No, I hate to say. That's Okay. More for, more for you to look forward to. Go ahead. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ashes. For our listeners that aren't familiar, why don't you give your little thumbnail pitch that, <laughs> that describes what the Ashes trilogy is about? Okay. In Ashes, uh, waves of EMPs kind of blanket the globe. Nobody really knows where they come from, but these electromagnetic, pul electromagnetic pulses knock out all the power grids, communications grids. They knock out anything that relies essentially on an on and off switch, including things like the cooling stations at nuclear waste facilities and nuclear power stations. And a lot of things start going kaboom. Nothing works. Planes drop out of the sky. Cars don't work. Anything that was manufactured essentially after 45, 1945 or 46 won't work. And so the world goes instantly dark. And also at the same time, a whole bunch of people who might be able to fix this just sort of drop dead, um, you know, which is very convenient. Um, but pretty much all the, the adults between the ages of about, I'd say about 25, 26 to about 65, just so flat out die. And I actually had a good reason for that, which I can talk about in a second. And uh, But the oldsters above 65 and, and over, they kind of are still alive. And the very young kids, they kind of get a headache, but they're okay. And then there are the kids in between, the ages from about, oh, 12 into about 24, 25, where I would classify most teenagers and young adults. And something very strange goes on with them, especially because their brains are in great turmoil to begin with because they're adolescents. And that's really really a scientific fact that their brains are so different from ours. Anyway, they turn into people that you really don't want to meet in a dark alley. 
Um, and all of this takes place, at least that the trilogy itself centers in a, in a remote area of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, if you've ever been up there, there's not a lot up there when you get past a certain point, just a lot of mountains and trees and a lot of, you know, isolated farms and stuff like that. And it follows the adventures of a girl named Alex, who is 17, who has gone up there essentially to scatter her parents' ashes on Lake Superior. And she may not make it back out again because she also has a terminal brain tumor. Um, and she is going to die. And she's, she's pretty much tired of all the chemotherapy. She's tired of people calling the shots for her life. And so she's taken her parents and her dad's Glock, and she might just end it right there. And then the world comes to an end, and then things go from there. All of a sudden, this kid who was trying very hard um, to decide, do I walk out or do I not walk out, is now trying to stay alive, which is good. <laughs> to live for, <laughs> which was, oh my God, I don't want to be eaten. <laughs> but it's not a zombie book. No, no. Everybody says it's a zombie book. I'm going, no, these young kids don't die. Their brains get scrambled, but they don't die. Yes, they're not, uh, they're not technically zombies. No, but... they're not technically zombies. They just like, they just have a lifestyle change. Yeah. <laughs> But there are some common motifs that they're sure. ready to eat you and sure. that sure. sort of thing. So. But some of them are much more calculated than others. Yeah. It's like, yeah. a, you know, they have the initial zap, um, which kind of scrambles them up. And then some of them stay kind of feral. But then others of them really begin to organize. And if you were a rocket scientist before you got zapped, or you're going to be a rocket scientist afterwards, you're just going to be a changed rocket scientist <laughs> who enjoys people, you know, in, in, in new and different ways. You want to have people over for dinner in, in ways that they never met. <laughs> it really is epic, especially once you get into shadows and monsters, just the universe that you're in just seems to expand and you get an idea of how big uh, this apocalypse is. Yeah, the the first book focuses more on Alex and stays more sort of personal and 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 focused, right. and then it really opens up into the other locations in the other right. novels. Right. And I did that really deliberately too. That's one of the reasons people have asked me before why I chose to do Ashes as a third person, particularly for the first book. Because And it was interesting. I had a discussion about this with an editor once where we were talking about first-person versus third-person narratives. Um, and, you know, a lot of first-person narratives are a lot easier for, especially for kids and a lot of people, to get into very quickly. And you, you, you tend to see most young adult, a lot of young adult, is written from the first-person point of view. And my, my feeling was that actually, and I've said this in other venues, sometimes it bothers me when you have a dystopian or apocalyptic that's supposed to be about the world, but it's so focused on this one person because you have to be first person point of view that then a tremendous amount of action happens off screen mm -hmm. that they can't all be there for. And then you don't really understand the ramifications for the rest of the world. It really, it just is not as big feeling. Now these books all have done better than mine, but oh well, you know, so what <laughs> do I know? But, um, but I did that very deliberately. Although some people, um, when they read Ashes, they, they, they were, when then they went on to shadows, they were shocked. They said, how come you, you switched in shadows from first person to third, you know, from ashes to shadows? And I said, no, 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 go back and look at, at ashes. It was third person all the way. And I did it because I knew I was going to be bringing in other characters and then I was going to be following their stories further on. So that's, that's why I did it. One thing that I found interesting about the broadening of the scope is that in reality, the, the physical area you're talking about mm. is actually very small. But, yeah. but the perception of the size has been increased because there aren't any cars, there aren't any, you know, people are going on foot a lot. And so suddenly what 
in in our world would actually be a fairly small place to get around in has this sense of being a much larger place. Right, right. Because things were so primitive too. I mean, yeah. on horses, they're going on skis, they're walking, you know, that type of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, I guess it'd be in some ways, I hate to say it because I'll never write one, but it's in some ways it's like a Western. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Well, it is. I mean, you know, you have a small territory where things happen within about, I mean, if you really scope out how, how big an area I'm talking about in Michigan, I mean, you're talking no more than maybe 50 square miles. Yeah. Or something like that. But it feels like because it takes them so long. And I chose to center in winter to make things as difficult as possible. So people would have to just sort of, you know, hang out. And I think at one point, I take that back. At one point in Shadows, we're in Wisconsin because it takes yeah. um, some time to make it back. Like four or five days to make it to the border from where he was in Wisconsin. But, yeah, when everyone's slogging along on foot, it feels big, don't it? <laughs> when you originally came up with the idea and started pitching it to editors and stuff. Was it always a, a, tr- a trilogy? No, it wasn't. It had first been a two-book series. I had written the first book. I actually wrote the first book. It was totally different. It was called Pulse. And it was much more woo-woo. You know, there was a, it was all about a CIA project called Stargate, which is a real project, mm-hmm. where they actually, you know, recruited telepaths to try to, you know, break into Russian defenses and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I was actually having this whole thing set more in Wisconsin than Michigan. And the dad was involved, and it was very woo-woo and da-da-da. And, uh, and so I wrote that first book, and then it was, it was actually going to be for a workshop, a novel workshop. And then Dean Smith did me a profound favor by canceling the workshop. <laughs> And so it was like, okay. So I put the book away. By then I was working on something else. I think I was working on, I don't know, some other young adult book. Anyway, I came back to Pulse when I was done with that book. So I had had a good three months for it to sit there and be nothing. Um, And then I went back and read it and thought, oh, this totally sucks. I mean, really, I just, I didn't like it. I said, ah, I don't like the woo-woo. And it was funny because by that point, I thought, you know, I'm going to rewrite this whole thing. I I kept, the only thing I kept was I kept the conceit of the EMPs. That was still true. And I kept the conceit of being in the woods. And um, I kept one scene that I massively rewrote. But then other than that, I trashed the entire book. It was just started over different characters, different everything. And rewrote the whole thing from scratch. Uh, first person uh, from, and also change it from first person to third, because I was starting to have an idea that this would be better if it didn't stick with this one person. And I had actually sent this book into Harlequin Teen as Pulse several months before, and then I heard back from the editor at Harlequin Teen saying we would really like to maybe you know do this. And by then I had a, by then I had an agent, so I wrote back to her. And I said, well, I'm actually in the middle of rewriting this into something different and better that I was going to send to you. Um, can you put her off because I don't want it to sell Pulse. I want to sell this better idea. And so she said, no problem. Um, and so she did. Anyway, when I sent in Ashes, um, she asked me to draft up a synopsis for the second book. And I said, sure. Um, but in the meantime, editors had already read it. In fact, one of my editors from Carol Rota read it just like that again, like in two days or something. And he called me up and he and I were on the phone. And he says, how many books is this? And I said, two. He says, no, it's three. <laughs> and I said, it is? He says, yes, you, you have a much bigger story here than you realize. You just don't know it yet. 
He says, when you, when you really open it up, especially in the second book, you're going to see it's going to be much bigger. And he was right. I yeah. mean, you know, gosh, I mean, Monsters is a real monster. People complain about my books being long. And I want to tell them, go tell that to J.K. Rowling. <laughs> J.R.R. George R. R. Martin. This whole thing that books have to be, have to be thin or uh, because everyone is tired and they want to have a, long, a short read. Like, Give me a break. <laughs> All of the books are just really action-packed like even if uh they're not fighting and like the scene you're reading or the chapter you're reading it's consistently very i want to say motivating but that's not the right word i understand i have reading at school down to a science right (laughs) but um there are usually periods of the day where i'll just like talk to my friends whatever the few minutes that uh were all waiting around for advisory to start uh during lunch but when I was reading Ashes and Shadows and Monsters, it was like, nope, I'm going to sit here and you guys can do whatever you want, but do not interrupt me because I'm reading. <laughs> and it was like during lunch and like so everything. Just your friends for me. <laughs> yeah. But then, and then half the time I'd be sitting there because then there are some really crazy fight scenes too. And uh, so I'd be sitting there reading it like, oh my God, <laughs> holding the book like, away from me. But like, it was so good that I couldn't stop reading. And so my friends would be like, Ella, yeah, you doing okay? I'd be like, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> well, I hope you've talked it up with all your friends and now they want to read it too. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, I was constantly telling them how good it was. They were like, it must be. You don't talk to us anymore. <laughs> I guess because with, with actually with all my books, um, and this is Draw the Dark, this is Drowning Nation, this is all of them. Um, remember when I said earlier that um, when you're a kid, everything that's bad seems like it's the end of the world and things will never get better? I really try to bring that mindset when I'm writing because for most kids that I've met, and, and, and talk to and dealt with and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's, it's right now. It's really important right now. And so it, that energy of right now is really important for me to try to keep getting across the page, even when you're having contemplative moments where people are sitting in their room thinking, do I really want to send off this application to Harvard or not? which actually it's Yale, but that's in the, in the Sin Uter's Confession where it's this big thing where he's sitting and thinking, do I want to press send or not? But what he's really thinking about is, is the idea of becoming a doctor his idea or his parents' idea? And for him, it's a huge issue, you know, who, who am I really, that type of thing. And so that type of urgency, I really like to get through because to an adolescent, everything is intense. I wished that the books could be a movie trilogy as well. Oh, you know someone with a lot of money? <laughs> you know, I do too. I keep, I look at them and I say, come on, you can make movies of Divergent and The Maze Runner and, you know, all these, and catching, you know, hunger, and you cannot make a movie out of ashes. I mean, come on. Well, I mean, and from what I've read of Divergent, which I didn't read all of it because I couldn't, your books are a lot better. <laughs> I should finish Divergent before saying anything about it, really, but from, like, the 60 pages I read, Ashes and Shadows and Monsters are just unimaginably better. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> 60 pages is plenty. <laughs> I mean, oh, if, yeah. if a book isn't working. Stephen King says, and this is actually a, 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 a rule of his I subscribe to whenever I read any book, although I've actually gotten much more impatient as I've gotten older. This is, happens to old people. They get cranky. <laughs> but, the, you know, Stephen King says if after 15% of a book, it is not giving back to you more than you're putting into it, 
chuck it. Life is too short. <laughs> and that's what I do with every book now. If it's, it's like being an editor. You know, if you've ever, your, your, your dad can tell you. Editors work this way, too. They, what happens is editors get a manuscript or, you know, or story or whatever, and you have a very short period of time to catch their interest, usually about three seconds, which is about enough time for them to skim the first paragraph. Thank God for those manuscript pages because it's only a third of a page. And if you can make them turn the page, then they'll go, damn it, you know, because you make <laughs> them turn the page. If you make them turn the page again, then they're really mad at you because now you really got them, and now they're reading so you, you actually have to, to look at your time as being valuable, regardless of what everybody else says. If a book is not giving to you, forget it. There are plenty of other books out there. Do you know there are 200,000 books published in the United States a year? I actually got a lot of phone calls and interest in Ashes in the beginning, especially after a Publishers Weekly article. Lots of phone calls and stuff. But, you know, Hollywood is a very strange bird. And I had a film agent for a while. Um, it's very, they're very strange. I actually heard back from one producer who wanted to, to buy the rights to option it for six months for a dollar. And yeah. she's actually a, a high level producer. And I said, no. And, and they, she had actually a director lined up and everything. And I said, no, because, and, and I, I, I refu and, and even my agent was going like, what? The film agent was saying, why wouldn't you take this? And I said, because it's an insult. It's like anything else. If you don't have to pay for something, you don't value it. So, you know, if you want to pay me a standard rate for an option, and I named a price, then you can do that, and then I can see that you're serious because you'll not want to waste that money. Um, but for a buck, you've got to be kidding me. No. Obviously, Ashes is not a phenom like a lot of other trilogies, and, and obviously if it were more of a phenom, my guess is, you know, people would have, you know, other people in Hollywood would look at it and stuff like that. Who knows? Um, but on the other hand, you can waste a lot of time and energy feeling bitter, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, you know, why not? Because, I mean, you look at these other movies, you go like, what? Why not me? But, you know, I didn't get into writing books to make movies. I wrote, got yeah. into writing books to write books. And so for me, the satisfaction is having a book out there with my name on it that I can hold in my hand and say, ah, I did it, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And I remember the first, the first time I held my Star Trek book, it was like, oh, life will never get any better. Well, life does. <laughs> but, you know, but at that moment, you still get the thrill of, that's mine. And, you know, if it ever gets picked up, great. I mean, I've actually had some television people come at me about white space. Um, which I think would be fascinating because that would be a really great conceit. Um, but I think because the sequel hasn't come out yet, it, who knows? But you know what happened was when J.J. Abrams came out with Revolution, yeah. all my friends who had read Ashes said, oh, he took your idea! <laughs> it turned out that at the time he was developing Revolution, Ashes had just hit. And in fact, J.J. Abrams' company did look at Ashes, and they said, oh, well, we are already doing a television show. <laughs> Some, <laughs> night. And I wanted to say, the only thing that's similar about it is there's no power. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, there's nothing similar about it. Please, make a movie! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of want to go, you know, and also in Hollywood, what happens is you're not supposed to, they don't work like real people. You, know, you can't contact them. You know, one film agent I had, she didn't even keep a list of the people she contacted or what she sent them or, or the query letter or anything. She just sort of like sent out the book. She says, you don't bother them. You let them contact you. And I thought, that is so squirrely. I almost said another word that you'd have to edit out. <laughs> so squirrely. I can't believe it. I'm sorry. I'll stop talking about Hollywood. Yes, go ahead. You are, 
it up. What can I say? <laughs> so in the Ashes trilogy, you focus on this uh, relatively small group of people, and it and it kind of snowballs out from the original character, and, and you know, but there's various interconnections right. in this small area. In many ways, you've kind of completed the the storylines of those main characters uh-huh. across the course of the the trilogy, but there's also the larger stories of this entire world that you've created, the situation that the world is in. Do you, do you still think about that? Do you consider coming back to the world to tell more stories in it? If you, if you came back to this story, would you want to tell more stories about these characters, or would you ever be tempted to go to some other place? Um, I thought about it from both perspectives. I actually wrote a blog about this called Letting Go back in September, right after the book came out, um, because a lot of people were saying, what, you can't end it like this? (laughs) (laughs) again. Um, But, you know, what my feeling was by that point, I had had wrapped up most of their stories, you know, except this, you know, one very important character. Um, And you still really don't quite know what's going to happen to the others. You know, are they really going to make it to where they want to go and things like that? And I've said that if I write, if I write another part of it, it will be because the characters come back or the world comes back and says, look, we have more to say. Um, And it shouldn't be because I feel like I want to go back there and more. It should be them saying, you know, we have more stories for you to tell. Having said that, do I have ideas for sequels in mind? Oh, you bet. (laughs) Uh, You know, it was, it's sort of, it's funny because Maggie Stiefvater is now coming back to her original Shiver trilogy and writing a whole, after she finishes the Raven Boys quadrilogy, if you want to call it that, um, she's going back to write another spinoff series, kind of like, you know, uh, Scott Orson Scott Card did for Ender's Game. He's writing, he wrote like mm-hmm. a, a parallel series. So she's writing a spinoff from one of the characters of her her Shiver series. And so I certainly thought about it. Um, here's my only concern, um, and and it's a big one. When I've seen people do that, I don't think that they do it as successfully as they do the original books. I mm-hmm. think that the original books have a lot of energy because it's a new situation. And what you want to do is that you want to be sure that if you're going to do revisit the world, that you add something new to the world, that it's not just a retread of what you did before. Yep. Um, and I, you know, and I felt that that has been a flaw of a lot of books that attempt to branch out from a main story to the, a side story and then try to bring them all back together again. There was a four book series that shall remain nameless that did that. Um, the first book in the series was brilliant and could have ended just where it was. Mm-hmm. And then the second story, all of a sudden we're in New York City and who cares? Um, and then by the third and the fourth book, they kind of their stories kind of come together again. But you know, I kind of always felt that the first book was always the best mm-hmm. because it's the freshest, and there were a lot of years in between the other yeah. books. So the answer is maybe. Yeah. Um, but I but it's like what I said to my editor about White Space and the sequel to Dickens Mirror. I said, you know, White Space is its type of book. Dickens Mirror is totally different because you cannot take people to do the same thing again. Yeah, it's boring. Um, and it would be boring for me as a writer. So um, if I did it, I might do it from the perspective of the problem is for me, the change need to remain kind of mysterious for me. Yeah. Um, because I think that this is and this is stupid, but it goes back to Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek, Star Trek ruined the Borg at a certain level by giving them too much of a voice. Mm-hmm. It was fine when they were not as their society was not as well known. It was good when they were an anonymous threat. 
I mean, they're the zombies of the Star Trek world, if you think about it. Yep. Um, they acquire you for parts, but big deal. The, you know, and it was fine to have seven of nine. She was a great character. Loved her character. But by making the Borg and their society and everything, you start to do this whole thing. They start to lose some of their menace. Yeah. I, and I think that the same thing can happen here with the changed and other things. You, if you start to go too much into them and the, their heads, you run the risk of um, making them just not as interesting as they are. And I think they're more interesting being the sort of malevolent, possibly, you know, maybe good kind of ambivalent presence out there than they are. It's like, you know, trying to understand wild animals. You never will. Yeah. So give it up. So the answer is I might. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward past uh, Dickens' mirror, do you have ideas of where you're going? Sure. Um, well, I don't have anything, um, you know, in the pipeline to come out through through a publishing house. Right now, I'm in the, the middle of writing uh, the beginning throes of a new novel, um, a standalone, um, a kind of a survivalist motif, mm-hmm. um, because it's a it's you know, a bunch of kids from a juvie detention center crashed in the mountains. But but the, being an Ilsa J. Big book, you're not quite sure if they're really awake or not. Because, um, you know, this may all be part of a hypnotic regression. There's a kid with a memory loss and all this sort of stuff. And and there are hallucinations. They're at juvie detention, but they were at the juvenile detention facility for psychiatrically disturbed kids. So a lot of them are on meds. And so what are they really seeing? So you've got that going on. So I I have, it's my Lord of the Flies tape. (laughs) (laughs) Bunch of boys out in the wilderness with wildfires and... And uh, hallucinations dogging their every, you know, and, and what's real and what isn't. And I love that. I just like <laughs> playing with reality like that. So that's what I'm writing right now. Then I have, after that, I'm going to do a straight up and down murder mystery, probably, um, that I've already begun, begun to outline. And then I have another series that I actually started. I wrote half of the first book. Um, but then I had to stop because I was in the middle of monsters. It's a science fiction time travel type of thing. Okay. And is that still uh, all YA, all those titles? All these are YA. Do you have any reason to consider going back outside of the YA, or do you feel like you've kind of found your niche and you're you're going to? I like where I am. Yeah. Like what I'm doing. Um, You know, I wouldn't say no if someone from Hard Case Crime, you know, emailed me and said, you know, we followed your career with interest. (laughs) If you would write us, uh, but you know, I would say, well, can I write you a Hard Case Crime book that's a YA focus? Mm You know, and, and see if I can get away with it. I've actually, every now and again, I've actually had the idea of writing a, a murder mystery from a YA perspective, just a synopsis, and sending it to them and saying, yeah. can I write this for you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, please. Um, I mean, I wouldn't mind getting a little bit more visibility by being able to cross genres into adult, but a lot yeah. of, I have a lot of adult fans, though, too. I think my oldest fan is 83. A well-written YA book is... What I've found in the variety that I've read, it's just as compelling for an adult to read. I agree. And and, and we can all remember our own teenage angst <laughs> as Absolutely. far as that goes as well. And so, you know, I've been re- you know, I've I'm reading your books. Uh, I'm a fan of uh, Pete Hotman, uh-huh. uh, who has written a lot of YA, both uh, in the science fiction genre and and out. Mm-hmm. And, and you know more s- straight literary kind of stuff, and uh, there's just a lot of great stuff going on in YA. So, 
Sure. Um, I see. I see no reason to really yeah. change. As I said, I think the situations for kids are a little tougher because you have the strictures of you know not only the age, but you have they have school, yep. you know, and stuff like that, and parents. And and you have to unless you're going to put it in an alternative society or in the future or society's gone, so you don't have to go to school. You know that kind of stuff. It's harder for them to just go off and do things, and, and but then they'll get into a lot of trouble. But then that's part of the fun. So, <laughs> so and in fact, for the murder mystery, I, I know that my my kid is essentially going to go AWOL from school, and that should be very interesting to become truant from school. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> that's where the narrative leads her. Follow those clues, kid. <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, coming you. on. It was uh, lots of fun. We'll have to have you back on to talk about new books as they come out. Thank you very much for having me, Scott and Ella. Nice talking to you. We are the Rusted Robot Podcast. Lower your shields and surrender your minds. We will add your MP3 recordings and opinion on Geekery to our own. We will adapt to embrace this culture. Resistance is futile. It's the Borg. Commander Adama, Cybermen, Daleks, and Cylons are fast approaching. Jump gates forming in multiple sectors, and the Doctor's nowhere to be found. What are we going to do? Tune into the Rusted Robot Podcast at therustedrobot.podbean.com and on the iTunes Store. Sean and Bridget Vanderloo's love for all things geekery and robots are our only hope. Oh, boy. Get rusted today. Robots. Cyborgs. Androids. Oh, my. Rusted Robot. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next month for episode 20, Saint Geek and the Dragon. We'll be talking about some of our favorite, and maybe not so favorite, movies with dragons. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from deep inside the Lonely Mountain. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come Come back back next time. podcast. Ooh, shiny.